Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, this is Saved for Later, a podcast from Guardian Australia about internet culture and the tabs our brains just can't close. I'm Alex Gorman. And I'm Michael Sun. And we're back, Michael, after a sort of somewhat summer. Yeah, it's been a it's been a somewhat summer. It's been a summer of rain, a summer of plague. But you know what? We're back. We're back to work, and it's a huge show about getting back to work. Yeah, later on today, we're going to be talking to Anne Helen Peterson. She's the co-author of Out of Office, a book that I read over summer and absolutely loved, and one of my favourite newsletters about live-action role-playing, a.k.a. LARPing your job. Not okay. Not healthy. Totally toxic. You're just, like, setting people up to burn out. But first, Alex, I have made a discovery. So obviously, you know how everyone's playing Wordle, so much so that the New York Times has just bought it. But you also know me. I'm an Aries, which means I love to be first to anything. And I have found the new Wordle. Okay, lay it on me. So it's called Wiki Trivia. Um, it's essentially like an online card game. It's a game about sorting random historical facts, people, places, corporations uh, in the order of when they happened. It's super easy, which is just like Wordle. Um, I've seen a bunch of card games with like a very similar mechanism in real life, of course, but this is the online version. Okay, Michael, Michael, I'm already playing it. <laughs> what do I do? Basically, what you're looking at is that up the very top, the card that it gives you is a card that you'll have to put into the timeline. Every card it gives you is something that will represent a date and you have to place it into your timeline, which is the existing card or cards on the bottom. Are we playing this together? Is this like a collective thing or are we in competition? Let's play together. I love that. All right. Oscar Schindler, famously of the list. <laughs> <laughs> and Vermont Republic, historical, unrecognised state, and then it's got a year, 1777. I am 100% confident that Oscar Schindler was born after 1777, so I am dragging his face onto the timeline in front of Vermont. Okay, Char Charlie D'Amelio born, that's obviously the most recent, come on. Yeah, I'd say the TikTok influencer probably born the most recently. Do you get a green box? I got a green box. You are absolutely right, Alex. Um, in the case that you had gotten a red box, for example, you do also get three lives. That, that's the three hearts at the very top of the page. The aim, of course, is to get as many cards in the right order as possible, which is called a streak. Oh, I love having three little hearts. It's like the start of every video game. <laughs> I'm loving this, by the way. I have, to, I have to tear myself away from it. Otherwise, we'll never finish this podcast. But... Where did you stumble on Wiki Trivia? Are you the only person playing this? Look, I cannot claim that at all. Unfortunately, I was gifted the game by a much cooler friend who had like found it just in the 
depths of the internet somewhere. But it's a game that's created by a programmer called Tom J. Watson. It's called Wiki Trivia because it actually pulls all of the historical facts and all of the data from Wikidata, which is like the Wikipedia for data. But it's definitely been floating around on the internet a little bit. You know, it's like a very merging kind of game. It has um, an article on The Verge about it. I've seen a couple of particularly on the ball Twitter users tweeting about it. I think I also unearthed talking about trivia and data that the word wiki trivia has been tweeted around 400 times in the past week. So this is your golden opportunity to get on something before it becomes a viral trend, aka Wordle. I love this game so much. What's really good about it is that unlike Wordle, where all you need to know is how to spell, yuck, blur, computers can do that for you. You actually need to know stuff to be good at it. Look, I feel like obviously it's a game that's ostensibly for people who know lots of things and history buffs and history nerds, which is definitely the exact opposite of who I am. I would describe myself personally as a himbo or at least an aspiring himbo. Well, Uh, you can't be a himbo if you know you're a himbo. I play this game to prove that I'm good at things that people don't think I'm good at, (laughs) aka knowing things. So the thing about this game, because I've just struck out, I had a streak of six. Not great, but maybe not the worst thing ever. I can share it, but I don't want to, which makes it not quite the same as Wordle. Why don't you want to share your score, Alex? Well, first of all, six just doesn't seem very impressive. If you get a bad score, the only person you have to blame is yourself. And I do blame myself when I get a bad score. Yeah, 100%. It's like your and my shared favourite game, the New York Times mini crossword, which when I get a score of over a minute and a half, I'm like, all right, I should not be allowed to drive today. (laughs) And the New York Times mini crossword has kept us going as well. And I think that is also, that almost feels like a nice middle ground between this game and Wordle in that it requires less specialist knowledge than a game like Wiki Trivial. And it's still as simple and as as easily shareable as a game like Wordle, where you can just share your time score with like all of your friends and even participate in a league with them. It also feels less dangerous than Wiki Trivia because, as you said, you've lost, what, 16 hours to this game? More? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least with the mini, it's, depending on how long it takes you to finish it, probably a maximum of five minutes a day. Wiki Trivia feels like it could steal years of your life. Something which makes a game like this seem really distinct from Wordle as well is that a lot of the discourse around Wordle is centred around how community-oriented it is. You know, it's like everyone's built this wholesome community around sharing their scores. You're all in on the game. Everyone loves Wordle. Everyone loves each other. It's all happy days. And, like, not to be super judgmental, but when I am playing a game, I want to win. <laughs> I want to be number one at the game. Like, I'm not interested in making friends. Yeah, because um, Wiki Trivia, it seems, actually does reveal something about you, that impulse to share will really just be bragging or self-flagellation, which means I can't see, like, a viral community building up around Wiki Trivia that's not completely toxic and big-noting. Feels like the Mensa of addictive online games. <laughs> but the impulse to share whether it's Wordle or Wikitrivia, is just I don't understand it because the only reason why I would play any sort of a game, be it a puzzle or a video game, is my own pleasure. And broadcasting my pleasure to the world just seems incredibly perverse to me. That's not why I play games. I think I need to play another round of this. All right, share your screen, Alex. <laughs> All right, you're on. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Anne Helen Peterson is going to tell us all about LARPing our jobs. And we're going to give you our recommendations for the week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So we have a very special guest with us today, Anne Helen Peterson. She's a writer. Her newsletter, Culture Study, is absolutely essential reading in my inbox, which we'll get to later. And her most recent book, Out of Office, explores working from home and how it might save us from the toxicity of productivity culture or make it significantly worse. So she's here today to talk us through that mess and maybe also a bit about how to clean it up. Anne, hello. Hi, I am so happy to be here. In your book, you have a subsection that is titled Stop LARPing Your Job. I'd love you to tell us what LARPing Your Job is and what it looks like. So LARP is an abbreviation for live action role playing. And it's something that's been around for a long time. Like uh, it's just a way of like you take a a game like let's say Dungeons and Dragons or something and you actually like put on clothes and go to a park and play it, right? Like you're going through the motions of like jousting or playing or killing people or whatever, right? It's play acting. And the term LARPing your job was developed by a technology writer named John Herman to talk about Slack specifically and other in-work messaging apps and how they became a way for people to show that they were working even when they weren't in eyesight of one another, right? So the way that you showed that you were putting in work was not only like contributing to the conversation during work hours, even though ironically, right, like when you're chatting in in a Slack room, oftentimes you're not doing your work, right? Like the actual work that you need to be doing, but you are evidencing that you are doing work, quote unquote, doing work. And then also the thing that Slack and other messaging apps that are available on mobile do is that they make it so that you can also evidence your availability at all times, right? So like responding to a Slack message at 11 p.m. or at 6 a.m. shows just the extent of your commitment. But again, a lot of this is just performing work, performing commitment, and not actually producing good work. So I recall like back in the golden days of Facebook, shall we say, and the explosion of Facebook groups, I guess the way that I was first introduced to this idea of LARPing your job was that there actually used to be 
this really popular Facebook group in which people did do a more satirical, ironic version of LARPing your job where everyone would be pretending to be an admin person at this like Dunder Mifflin style company. And you'd like post in the Facebook group, like, does anyone have a stapler at their table? Like, hey, like, <laughs> hey, John, let's go for a walk to the to the water cooler. But that was like 10 years ago. Now this is a, like a proper real thing. People are actually have taken this out of satire and into real life. Right, right. Well, and it's also like a version of when small children play at like going to the office mm. and all they do is like get staplers, <laughs> right? Which which is not what work is. Work is not stapling. Like work is, so much of work is going on in your head. But the problem and why I think LARPing your job has become so common is that thinking is very hard to show evidence of, right? Like it's very hard to show. Like I was staring into space cogitating on an idea. I always think of this scene in the show Mad Men where the you know the main character Don Draper is is an ad executive and spends a lot of time like just coming up with like one idea and everyone is always critiquing him for like my gosh he like naps all day or he goes to the movies. But what that is is actually he's getting fuel for that one idea, that brilliant idea that he has to come up with. And people look at that and they're like, this guy's so lazy, when really he's just living a creative life. I imagine that the pandemic has hyper-intensified the need to perform that kind of presenteeism for people who are no longer in the office. And I was wondering if, Anne, you could share a particularly egregious example of work LARPing from your own life recently. I used to work for for BuzzFeed News and I felt such a compulsion to constantly be checking in. Even when I was doing things like like I had worked the entire weekend on reporting a story and was flying back and I would be like, oh, well, I should file this uh, edition of my story, even though it's midnight, right? Like even though, I, but I'm showing how hard I'm working. Yeah, that need to prove I've been up until midnight. I'm filing it as soon as it's done yes. to demonstrate yes. that it took me till midnight. But I also, I think email is like a particularly noxious thing because so much of it, like some people have separate work and life emails, but especially freelancers, especially people <laughs> whose um, work like really bleeds into the rest of life. They have one email address, right? So you have one space where all of the communication is coming to you and it sucks out all of the, the potential joy of correspondence. Like remember when we used to send emails that were like lovely letters to one another like that that is gone that has all been sucked <laughs> out of the email inbox and now a lot of people myself included really treat their inbox as a to-do list and on that to-do list there are always items that you have been ignoring for up to two years <laughs> right like I like <laughs> just and sometimes you just have to delete things and like call it zero but I think people who are people pleasers especially and that is oftentimes, but not exclusively women, feel this, this idea that somehow they are failing as a person if they do not immediately respond to every query in their inbox. But I am also here to sing the gospel of priority inbox, which allows all of those emails to just go into the sea, this floating sea below, and the, the priority ones to go on top. And I think actually talking about the pandemic earlier as well, I think 
obviously this idea that you have to respond to everything and you have to be performing your job at all times has definitely gotten worse and worse. Like I remember nightmare stories of some of my friends telling me they worked in government jobs with like heavy surveillance from their bosses at all times. And if they even stopped typing for over a minute, it would send a notification being like this person's away away yeah. from the computer. So what they did was actually, if you cast your minds back to that Simpsons episode where Homer is like applying a woodpecker to, to peck, peck the Y <laughs> key at all times, they would literally put a weight on their laptop, open an empty Google Docs file, and that would allow them to go for a five-minute break. <laughs> that is so regressive and dystopian. And I think that this is the thing with so much surveillance technology, whether it's surveillance technology that is tracking keystrokes or your eye placement, or there's some that like takes a screenshot of your screen mm. at various intervals. All of it, first of all, evidences an extreme distrust in the employee and sets up a relationship between employer and employee in which there's this expectation that you are trying to screw us over, right? Mm. That you are trying to like, do not do your job, right? When the vast majority of people that I know, they're not trying to shirk their employers, right? They're not trying to be that, like that one story of the person who like held down two jobs at two different companies and tricked everyone. Like, who is that person? The, really what it is, is that like most people are trying to do a really good job and that sort of surveillance undercuts their best intentions and makes them want to do a worse job, right? Like it's just engenders distrust. So if you don't have a workplace that is an Orwellian nightmare, there are still kind of urges to engage in that performative presenteeism online. Aside from hyper-surveillance culture, why do people do this? I think that there is a lack of clear communication about responsibilities in a lot of jobs, right? A lot of people are bad managers and it's not because they're bad people. It's because they've been promoted to positions of, of oversight and management because they were good at their jobs, not because they necessarily have the skills to be good managers and good communicators. And so in that scenario, <laughs> you have a real vacuum of clarity of what a person should be doing, of what good work looks like, of what overperforming or underperforming looks like. And when you have a lack of clarity, I think people, especially millennials who have felt for most of their lives that they're standing on economic quickstand, there is a desire to just like overproduce, like produce as much as possible, work all the time and obsess over productivity and showing your productivity so as to make legible to your manager that you are doing a good job. Whereas if your manager had been very clear, if you, like there is a, a really clear line of communication about what good work looks like, you know how to do that, right? You know like, oh, these are my deliverables. This is what I'm expected to produce. And there isn't that sort of anxious, over-emailing, over-meeting calling, LARPing your job behavior. It's also not just an individual problem, um, as you say in the book as well. One person LARPing their job leads to almost, I hate to use this word, a pandemic of people LARPing their jobs <laughs> as well because you yes. almost send out a flare into the sky that everyone should be doing this. Have you kind of like personally experienced the pressures just by seeing other people also being really performative in the workplace in the past? Yeah, I think that like if you have a culture that is really online and LARP performance uh, centered, then it does like that's how people evidence that they're doing good work is by 
is by doing that as well. Whereas like I, you know, at BuzzFeed, we had a, a very active Slack presence, but there are other publications where I or where friends have worked where Slack is really quiet. And that's because people are doing their jobs. <laughs> right? Like they're out there reporting or they're out there like writing and there isn't that anxiety over I need to be fake doing my job by like putting a, a reaction into a Slack conversation to show that I'm here. And so I think that like, you're right, it does spread. One person does it or like a group of people do it and then you become a weirdo for not doing it. Even if you have very good reasons for it, even if you're like... I don't do well with this distraction. I, it makes it harder for me to do my job. There might be other people who think like, oh, well, this person isn't committed or this person is off like playing video games all day. Sometimes it's good to put like, I, <laughs> it's good to play. Like I was just playing Wordle. I was like, oh, I'm just playing Wordle to get my mind so that I can concentrate on this other thing. It's okay. As long as you do what you need to do. Speaking of video games, in the book you tried an experience that kind of was a video gameized version of an office. And you said that ironically, this video game version, like this virtual office, felt less like LARPing your job than our kind of standard technical communications like Google Chat and Slack. Can you talk to us about that experience? Yeah, you know, this was before. Facebook became like meta, you know what I mean? Like before the, before the metaverse became a, a massive topic of conversation. And like I had played Second Life back in like the 2000s and a lot of people have experiences with, with similar scenarios. What I think is interesting about these more like VR style office environments is that they simulate the feeling of proximity. Like you come up to someone and vote like the sound of your voice like comes into proximity of them. And you don't have to like have an avatar. In this particular one, we were just like blobs, like red blobs, right? So you don't have to have a corporeal presence, but it just, it, it approximated that feeling of like, oh, I got up to go print something out and I ran into someone doing this. Like you can make the rounds in a way that's different from sending a Slack message to, to six people say. And like, as much as I hope that the future of work is not us being shapeless blobs logged into a work <laughs> environment all day, every day, it does sound like ironically, one thing that you mentioned as well is that it actually provides those guardrails between work and life. Because once you log off from that digital work environment, that's signaling that your day is done. Unlike how we currently have it where the, this phenomenon of LARPing means that you can never kind of log off. Like you're just right, always right. on. Right. Like what if you're only working when you're the purple blob, right? Exactly. <laughs> I remember I, at one of my former jobs, there were fairly aggressive repercussions from management if you weren't replying to the group threads at 9pm. Not okay. Not healthy. Totally toxic. <laughs> you're just like setting people up to burn out. And I think that you, you see a lot of that right now where companies were like, oh, productivity is going up during the pandemic. Like, let's keep it going, right? Without accounting for the ways that the current setup really encouraged people to work all the time and not have any separation between work and the rest of their lives. Like the pandemic and, and lockdown just like makes work funnel into the rest of your life so readily. And now we, particularly in the United States, really have this season of burnout 
And companies either have to grapple with that or they're seeing a, a lot of turnover. What can we do to make that compulsion to work all the time structurally better? Is the answer something like what has happened in France where they attempted to pass a no emails after 6pm rule? Like what do those guardrails look like? Yeah, we use the example of the law in France as like a great example of a well-intentioned regulation that totally failed for multiple reasons. But one of the reasons was there was no enforcement and you could very easily get around it, right? So there wasn't like a penalty, wasn't against the law per se to have to email past 6 p.m. And you could also... Um, if you were like you could petition if you were a company of a, of a certain size, but it also failed to understand the ways in which like we live in a global business environment. You know, like right now I'm talking to you from Washington State and you're in Australia. Like we have to figure out time zones that work for people across the globe if you are collaborating in any sort of way. And I really think this is going to continue to be the future. So how do we think about that? Like. You know, there have been times I usually, I don't love to start my work day until usually around like nine or 10. But when I was doing interviews for the book in Spain, the only way to really make it work for them was for me to start at 8 a.m. And I was like, that's fine, right? I'm just going to stop work an hour earlier. Hmm. So it's more about thinking about like, how can I make my day flexible to various needs in my life while also preserving the length of my day. And I'm not saying like exactly, it's more like when, when I feel tired, it, the day is done, right? Like when I feel like I have done all of my creative work and I am just sitting here twiddling my thumbs being like, well, I feel like I have to be on the internet until 5 p.m. because that's just how it is. Like, that's silly. Go do something that allows your mind to rest. What really resonated with me from the book as well was this idea of trust, right? Trust between employers and employees. Trust that you're like, if that, if you're a manager, trusting that your employees are actually doing the work and are getting it done in their own time. And I think that as cheesy as it sounds, like if we were somehow able to build that level of workplace trust everywhere, then we wouldn't have these issues of people overperforming in order to prove that they were a good employee. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is actually where something like labor protections and unions really become interesting because I think in some places there's this real understanding that like, oh, if a company has an active union, like that's an adversarial relationship when really what the labor union and what a union agreement can do is cement that relationship of trust where the the worker knows here is my contract, right? Like here is my mode of engagement. Here's exactly what I can ask of my employer, what I am owed for this amount of work. And the employer in turn can say, here is what we expect of you. Like the terms Mm. are just very clear. Like that's the thing that a union does is it clarify that relationship and engender trust is oftentimes a very clear agreement that's achieved through labor protections. Yeah, I must say we work at a heavily unionized office and knowing that egregious overwork and sending out a message at midnight demonstrating how much you've been working is an undermining of solidarity is certainly a strong incentive to not behave like that even when you feel like doing it. Yeah, you know, and that is a great way of thinking of it as like an undermining of solidarity. You are like that like sending an email at 11 p.m. is scabbing essentially, 
right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that is exactly it. So the very end of your book has a quite self-helpy but pretty glorious letter to workers where you talk about the value of truly disconnecting from work, ceasing LARPing, bringing back more time and emotional energy into your life that's not funneled into work. Can you give me your, I guess, utopian vision of what we could be doing with our time if we weren't dedicated to work 24 hours a day? Yeah, for sure. I think about it all the time. Um, I think that we spend time with people who aren't our immediate families, then, you know, whether that's like providing care to other people in our community. You know, I don't have kids and I would talk about this a little bit in the, in the book, but like my partner and I really feel committed to helping our friends that do have kids with caregiving. And that's something that's possible when your entire life is not work, right? Like I can take a part of my week and be like, this is what I do with these kids every single week. Also volunteering. It is oftentimes very difficult to create space in your life for a regular commitment to volunteering when again, the only access of your life, access A-X-I-S, is work. You're like, of course I can't spend two hours at the food bank every Thursday. That's when I'm supposed to be working. But what if you could make a flexible arrangement that allows that to be a regular commitment? And then the other thing is remembering what else you like to do outside of work. A lot of us have lost sight of those things, those hobbies that we cultivated as kids that we did not because they made us good candidates for jobs, right? Not because they could be our side hustle. Things that we did just because we liked them. We could be crappy at it. Like I'm a I love gardening. I am a thoroughly mediocre gardener, right? But I love it. And that is what matters. Well, we are off to go make a podcast for fun and definitely not for work. Uh, <laughs> but Anne Helen Peterson, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, your book, Out of Office, is out now. Thank you again. Thank you. Okay, it's time. It is that part of the show where we tell you what to watch, what to read, what to consume. It's top of the list time. Alex, what is in your brain this week? Yellow Jackets. It is such an addictive, enjoyable, horrifying romp about trauma and cannibalism and a girls soccer team stranded in the woods. If you haven't got it yet, it's probably because you haven't subscribed to Paramount Plus, which is the streaming platform that it is on. Subscribe, binge watch the whole thing, then cancel your subscription before you get charged for the next month. It will be worth it. And after you've become completely addicted and engrossed, you should definitely read Guardian Australia's interview with the Australian on the cast who has developed an absolute cult following, the actor Liv Hewson. It, it might be the best headline I've ever seen where they talk about how all they care about is gay people on Twitter. And who cares about anything else, really? My top of the list is the concept of gut health. Um, as a <laughs> oh, himbo, no. I feel like... I really fed into the trend last year where it was like, all hot girls have stomach aches. Um, but I was shaken out of my out of my illusion by another tweet this week, which said, all hot girls have stomach aches. No, they don't. Go see your doctor. You have a problem. Um, and I did. Thank you so much, Michael, for 
sharing your stomach issues today and thank you so much to everyone else for listening to them. If you like the show, you should absolutely subscribe to Save for Later wherever you get your podcasts. You can also leave us a review, but please only nice ones because I have a tiny sensitive ego. And I have a bad stomach. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Coney, who also handcrafted the music. And our executive producers are Miles Martignoni and Steph Harmon. We'll be here again next week, working through our tabs once again. your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 